This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly Warthog Man Cave. I'm preparing to see myself on the screen here in a moment, I hope. And um, we're waiting to also have our guest patch in with us, Phil Kirpin, for the day. And uh, we'll talk with him in a little bit as soon as he's available. Bill Kirpin of American Commitment is going to be talking about, uh, hopefully in a minute or two, when we get with him as student loan bailout, which is very controversial. And I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. Ward, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Phil, I can hear you. Don't see you, but I hear you. So I'm All right, Well, I. Uh, yeah. I, I, again, guy. I hate to do this to you twice in a row. I got stuck in traffic again. You know, I dropped my kids at school about ten after eight, and I'm still not in the office. Because traffic is back in D.C. And uh, anyway, maybe you could, take, you could take commercial in about 10 minutes and I'll switch to the uh, video in my office. But I'm still in the car right now. OK, well, let's do that. I'll go with my introductions in about 10 minutes. Let's talk about what we can talk about. Uh, there's a lot of things I want to talk about with you, too, besides just a student loan bailout. My golly, you guys analyze everything. But let's get to what you got on your mind. First of all, uh, I, I'm hoping that student loan bailout gets shot down by the Supreme Court. What's your take on that? Well, I think there's a very good chance of that. We've now got uh, two circuit courts that uh, have either put in an injunction or allowed a lower court injunction to stand. That's the Eighth Circuit and the Fifth Circuit. And the Eighth Circuit case, which I think is the strongest case, uh, because the state of Missouri has a very, very good claim uh, to standing since the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority is the largest servicer of direct federal loans. So they're directly harmed uh, by what Biden's doing. Uh, that case is at the Supreme Court right now. It's in front of Justice Kavanaugh on appeal. Biden appealed the injunction out of the Eighth Circuit. And Kavanaugh asked for briefing. And so there are all these briefs that went in over the last week. And so we could see something out of him, you know, any time, any day now, we could see something out of him. Of course, we don't know whether he will decline to take the case, whether he will refer it to the full court, whether he, uh, whether the uh, full court will take it up now or whether they will lift the injunction or whether they will uh, decline. So there are a lot of different possibilities for what the Supreme Court could do uh, based on the procedural situation right now. But I'm getting pretty confident that this thing is going to be stopped in court. Uh, we've now got injunctions, as I mentioned, out of two circuits. And the panel the panel that just upheld the injunction in the Fifth Circuit down in Texas actually had an Obama appointee, uh, I think it was an Obama appointee, a Bush appointee, and a Trump appointee. In 3-0, they upheld the injunction. So that kind of tells you that this is something that even the more liberal judges uh, understand, that the president can't spend $400 billion on his own uh, that offends our, our, you know, the basics of our constitutional system where Congress has the power of the purse. And so I'm pretty optimistic on this one, uh, Ward. And there's actually a liberal law professor, Jed Sugarman, out of Fordham 
University who said he thinks it could be a 9-0 decision at the Supreme Court against Biden. Now, I don't think the three liberals on the court are going to do that, but you never know. Remember, Obama lost 9-0 when he tried to make, you know, quote-unquote, recess appointments while the Senate was not in recess. And even the liberals on the court said, no, 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 that's uh, too far for us. So you might even see, you know, the liberals on the court slap this down. So we'll see what happens. But I, I'm getting pretty optimistic as the injunctions have now piled up, you know, from two different circuits. Well, then our reading all along, Phil, that it was not constitutional. This was a real um, usurp of power and uh, hubris and all the other things here that you want to talk about. And it was done blatantly just to try to buy the student vote. Is there any indication? Yeah, well, I that? think well, I think that I think that was the point more than anything. And uh, you you may have noticed, like the day after the election, they said, "Oh, we're not taking applications anymore. We're going to wait and see what happens in court." But you know, for the month before that, they were taking applications, even though you know there was there was no reason to think it was legal then either. But uh, to your point, you know, they wanted all of these younger voters who weren't necessarily uh, you know excited and engaged. To think they were getting ten or twenty thousand dollars from President Biden and the Democrats, and uh, I think it worked. Unfortunately, I think it boosted turnout exactly the way they wanted it. Oh, somebody running a red light in D.C. I heard that. No, <laughs> no, Phil. I, I don't think, know what was haunting because we're gridlocked right now. Nothing's even moving. I, I, um, uh, I think um, my post-game analysis of it, and what I've been able to ascertain, is that it did work to some extent. Uh, there's maybe more measurable. Uh, um, recognizable increase in student vote. And then one can conjecture, I guess, whether it is a result of this, but it certainly didn't have a negative effect. I suppose if I were motivated, you know, the joke here locally, Phil, in our area is that the students don't turn out unless there's uh, an argument about what time the bars close and then they turn out to vote. Um, why wouldn't this be the same? <laughs> I'm serious. That's when they, the greatest... Uh, turnout of student voting in the city of Gainesville is is when there's an argument about whether bars clubs are two or four. <laughs> and uh, other than that, the university crowd's not much interested in what's going on in their government. But uh, in this case, you know, if they can uh, make a way without having to pay back, uh, I suppose it would be some uh, thing to get them off a dead center and make them come down and pull a lever if they have to do that. I guess they can even do that now by mailing something in. There's no more going. Yeah, to you know, they... Here's how here's how shameless the Biden administration is. They actually sent out emails to millions of people who filled out this application. They sent these emails out that said, your application is approved, but the mean judges won't let us give it to you. Won't really? let us give you the money. I mean, they didn't say the mean judges, but, you know, they said they said your application is approved. The courts won't let us give you the money. But, you know, if the injunctions lifted, we'll press send and you'll get the money immediately. They sent these out, millions of emails. That say, but I think the subject line was, your application is approved. <laughs> well, you know, that's interesting because that's patently misleading. I would assume you agree with that. And misinformation, all the above. Well, what they're trying to do is they're trying to, you know, they, now that they've got what they really wanted out of it, they want to make sure that they're not blamed when the money never comes through, that it's, you know, it's these terrible Republican states for suing and these terrible judges for uh, blocking it. And, uh, you know, we tried our best. That's what they're trying to set up now, I think. Well, you know, there's another uh, uh, domino then to follow on down the line. You know, they play three dimensional chess, if you will. Then you can come back and argue that uh, the courts need to be packed or the courts need to be changed, particularly if they don't get what they want at the Supreme Court. I can see setting up an argument if I were a democratic strategist. Uh, I would say, now, listen, what's what we want? 
we want the Supreme Court to turn it down because then we're going to come back and argue that we need to. Yeah, have look, I mean, it, huh? if the Supreme Court if the Supreme Court decides this on a five four or a six three, I think it will feed directly into their efforts to uh, pack the court. If the decision is an eight one or a nine zero or something like that, it's much harder for them to do that. And so part of it, we need we need to kind of see what the Supreme Court does before we sort of play out the next steps. Well, let's take the options and summarize for the uh, people just checking on here on the show. We're talking with Phil Kirkman, President of American Commitment, who uh, uh, we're talking right now about the student loan bailout. So, A, the Supreme Court could agree to hear it and turn it down, and the vote would be yet to be determined. Or, B, the Supreme Court says, we're not going to listen to it. Um, and then we're going to let the circuit court decision stand. Is that a scenario that could happen? There are basically three things they could do. They could overturn the injunction which would let Biden press send and send the $400 billion out uh, while the case proceeds. They could uphold the injunction and not take the case, and that would kind of keep things where they are, and it would continue to play out you know, in the Eighth Circuit. Or they could say, you know what, we're going to take the case now and schedule oral argument, and we're going to make the decision. So those are basically the three things they could do. And uh, the, the first two of those things, Kavanaugh could either do himself or he could refer it to the full court. So that's kind of the full. I, I think that based on the fact he asked for briefing and everything else, he's not going to decide this himself. They're going to have a vote of the court. Uh, but those are basically the, uh, the the three things they could do. They could they could either lift the injunction and uh, you know let Biden hit send. They could keep the injunction in place, or they could decide to take the case now. So the best scenario, in your interpretation, having studied this, would be for what to happen: them take the case and have a nine zero vote. Yeah, that would be the uh, that would be the ideal scenario. Yeah, no question about it. That would be uh, that would be a pretty stinging rebuke of the administration if you were able to get you know nine or eight or even seven. I mean, if you get any of the liberal justices, I think that would that would basically undercut any argument he had that this was legitimate. Well, given the way precedent works in the legal world, then is there a precedent already they can go look at that you know of where they could say, "See, people have tried to pull this in run before." Uh, the executive decree has failed on this, that one thing, another reasoning, and we're applying it here. Or is this one of those deals where they're going to have to set a precedent, which I think always makes the courts nervous, by the way. But, you know, sometimes they have to. Um, what do you make of that? Is there something? already? Well, we've got some pretty recent decisions that I think uh, make it very unlikely that Biden can win at the Supreme Court. Remember, we had the eviction moratorium that they overturned, and that was a similar rationale of basically, hey, COVID's an emergency, so I can do whatever I want. Uh, that was overturned. But we also had the West Virginia versus EPA case when the Supreme Court said, look, you know, they overturned uh, Obama's carbon uh, cap on the power sector. And they said, look, you know, when Congress wants an agency or the executive branch to act on what they call the major question, a major issue of consequence, they need to say so directly. They need to say, we want you to do this. It's not good enough for you to grab an old law off the shelf and uh, twist it to new purposes when it comes to doing a major new program. And I mean, how, how could the student loan bailout not be a major new program? They're going to spend $400 billion. And so I think uh, that, that, that those recent precedents are uh, pretty, pretty damaging uh, for the Biden administration's chances in this case. But a question, is anything to the fact that um, I don't think this will happen, but we hear this pressure from to get Barrett to uh, uh, recuse herself on issues where her Christian faith interferes with her judgment. Um, that that really is really a, a, a kind of a cheap shot. But 
never they're not allergic to cheap shots. Um, anything comments on that? I don't think it play into this decision, would it? Well, you know, the Supreme Court uh, they decide on their own recusals, and you know, anyone can. Oh, now I see the problem, by the way. There's an intersection that has red in every direction. It's not even flashing. It's just red in every direction. No one knows what to do. Uh, so this is, the D.C. is very competently run, as uh, I'm sure you expect. Um, you know, I, I, they can always call for recusals, and they always do for all kinds, kinds of fake, phony, spurious reasons. But the justices decide for themselves. And, uh, you know, I don't even did... did uh, Katanji Brown Jackson Jackson recused herself from the uh, affirmative action cases. Well, oh, that was she said she was going. That was precisely. She said she was going to, but I don't think she did. So I mean, the thing is, these guys can decide for themselves. Basically, that's precisely my point. If you're going to decide it on the basis of faith, uh, why you don't? You, why what keeps you from deciding it on the basis of race? I mean, you know, the assumption is that you put all that aside when you become a Supreme Court. Uh, justice and you're screened and uh, interviewed. Yeah, right. I mean, the, I, I honestly, I honestly, even the liberal justice, I don't think they make decisions based on, you know, personal interests or anything like that. I, these people are, they're the top of the legal profession. They make the decisions based on their views of the law. I mean, you know, the, the problem is just that the liberals have real twisted views of the law. But I, I don't really think that there's a lot of, uh, you know, corruption in that sense. We're talking with Phil Kirpin, President of American Commitment, who is stuck in traffic uh, in D.C. And one not surprised about D.C.'s being dysfunctional, but um, is talking to us by audio right now. If you have a question, I'm looking at chat comments here. Please let us know. Um, Phil, um, besides this, of course, this issue, um, I got something else that's sticking in my crawl. Maybe you got a few moments to comment on. And that is the Inflation Reduction Act. My God. Huh? Bring me up to well, speed. You know, they, they love, remember the Affordable Care Act? They just name things the opposite of what they are. It's, uh, I, I don't know, it's a tradition uh, in Washington. Um, yeah, they're going to reduce inflation by spending another trillion dollars or whatever it is that we don't have and uh, printing it. And uh, I, I don't know what to tell you. You know, that bill is actually much more dangerous than even most people appreciate because on top of all the spending programs uh, that have been talked about and all the tax carve-out giveaways for green energy and electric vehicles and everything like that and the Medicare cuts and all the rest of the stuff in that bill. They also have this massive $300 billion slush fund uh, that the Secretary of Energy controls for, uh, you know, federally guaranteed loans for energy infrastructure. And that, that wasn't even in the score of the bill because they score the bill as if all the loans are going to be paid back. But of course, we know not all the loans are going to be paid back because they're going to have a thousand cylindras and uh, they're going to fund every harebrained scheme of their buddies and uh, campaign contributors and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, it's bad enough that that program is formally under the control of Jennifer Granholm, the energy secretary, who's a left wing nut, uh, because it's going to informally be under the control of John Podesta, who's uh, acting as the key White House advisor on it. And, you know, he's a left wing political operative. And so I think, um, you know, I really hope that this Republican House that's coming in uh, goes to the mat on trying to repeal that and a lot of these other damaging spending provisions that have just been passed. And uh, they really play hardball. And it's very easy for them to say, oh, we only have the House. We can't do anything. We don't have the Senate. We don't have the presidency. But I would like to see them uh, 
really, really press these things and even be willing to take it to government shutdown if necessary. But we've got to get we've got to get spending under control and uh, stop a lot of these abuses. And, you know, if we make the case to the American people, I think that we can make it a political problem for the Democrats if they keep spending these obscene amounts of money and connect the dots between that and inflation. And, you know, the fact that they have another massive increase in government spending and have the nerve to call it inflation reduction, uh, it's pretty shameless. And, you know, that thing actually has all these ripple effects, as you know. Um, Just to give you an anecdotal type of illustration, uh, if you go to our local um, store here, grocery store, the price of egg, one egg and a dozen eggs is now 50 cents, my wife tells me, who watches this all the time. And as a few as two or three weeks ago, it was 25 cents. So you can't, on the other hand, take that egg and uh, sell it to a customer for breakfast and double the price of the breakfast. Um, and yet you've got employees you've got to keep up. Let's talk about this uh, railroad strike. I mean, in a way, you know, this Inflation Reduction Act causes um, people to have to ask for more money. And if they can't get it, they got to strike. And do they put these things together in their brain? When they, I'm, I know the answer is no. But do you see the two connected? It's a really good point. I mean, you know, the the 24 percent raise that the rail works are being offered sounds like a big raise, right? So, oh, 24 percent. What's wrong with them? Why aren't they uh, happy with that? Well, it's over three years. And where inflation's running right now, that's like, that just keeps you where you were. All it does is keep up. Now, I know a lot of people are listening saying, I'd love to keep up. I'm not even going to keep up. I'm falling behind. Uh, but my, my point is, I kind of understand where they're coming from with saying, you know, if you want us to agree to that, okay, but we want to have paid, paid sick leave, which we don't have now. So I'm just a little bit sympathetic. You know, usually I'm an anti-union kind of guy, but I'm kind of sympathetic to them right now. And it's kind of amazing the extent to which Democrats are on board with, you know, Congress stepping in to essentially gift Warren Buffett, you know, the, the owner, one of the richest men in the world who owns the biggest railroad, they're going to gift him with imposing this contract that the, the workers have voted against, essentially. Uh, I don't know. I'm not, I mean, I get, I, a strike would be terrible. There's no question about that. So I do get the argument for stopping one. But, you know, what I would do probably if I were in Congress is I would do a bill to extend the negotiating period or put an arbitrator in or something. I wouldn't just impose, a, I, would, I would stop a strike, but I wouldn't just impose a contract. Well, it certainly is a dog chasing its own tail in so many ways because um, it reminds me also of another, if you try and take an old rolling pin and roll out the dough and get rid of the lumps and you roll out one lump and you create another one at the other end of the uh, of, of what, you know, the the, uh, the dough while you're not getting anywhere. And that's kind of what this thing is like. Um, what the answer is, obviously, fiscal responsibility, but I haven't seen it in any much government at all. Uh, def- is defense spending, is it off the cracks, too? I mean, uh, they're trying to make it a woke organization, um, which has nothing to do, I don't think, with the effectiveness of the combat readiness. But it's expensive to get these things all woke agendas pushed through everything, isn't it? Well, I think we've got a lot more sort of waste in the defense budget than ever before. And it's, uh, to your point, it's, it's social spending and you know, the left-wing agenda, which actually has nothing to do with defending the country, but you know, we're diverting an enormous amount of resources to that. And so, yeah, I do. I think, that's, uh, I think that that's an element of it. But, you know, it's tough because the Democrats now for, I don't know, at least 10 years, They've been playing this game where they say anytime you want to increase defense, we have to increase non-defense by the same amount. 
And so if you actually want to improve national defense, you've got to uh, be willing to send a bunch of wasteful spending to a bunch of non-defense stuff, and they've been kind of stuck with that principle. Uh, but I do, I do think, you know, I'm not one of these guys that says you should always just increase the defense budget. I think the defense department is as wasteful as any other part of the federal government, if not more. And so I think we, you know, they, they finally had uh, an audit a few years ago that did David Norquist ran and they just found massive, massive waste, you know, just thousands of government buildings that aren't even being used owned by the department of defense, all kinds of stuff. So I, I would like to see, uh, I would like to see a lot of cuts in the wasteful parts of the defense budget so we can move that money towards war fighting and, uh, you know, the actual legitimate defense priorities. So I'm not, I'm not of the opinion that, uh, defense needs to be spared from spending cuts. I think there's plenty to cut. In defense, also, but you know, you got to be smart about it and separate the waste from the stuff that's actually important. Yes, I'm afraid it doesn't happen though. We every time we have a uh, congressional assembly, if you will, uh, things sort of remain the same. You know, we have I uh, have Ted Yoho on every once in a while, or uh, as a guest, former U.S. representative. His frustration is that the uh, the inability of the committee structure to ever get anything done. Uh, he comments that a lot of the decisions lie idle or controlled by those chairs or those committees. They just never get out of the committee and that the staff really runs D.C. where you are there. And, and that's why so much doesn't see the light of the day or they're taking care of a pet project. Uh, uh, I don't know if we can ever break that log jam up. Is, McCar- is the Congress going to be led uh, is it, uh, by some McCarthy? Is he going to make it? I know. I hear there's a lot of argument about his leadership. Well, um, there certainly are enough people saying they don't want to support him to make the outcome in doubt. But my view is kind of, you can't beat somebody with nobody. And I don't see anyone else who's got a better chance of getting it done. So I think that, I think that at the end of the day, he'll cut, you know, whatever the deals are that are necessary and he'll manage to squeak through. But, you know, it's, there's some uncertainty because what could happen is he could lose that first vote and then everything could be thrown into disarray and chaos. And, you know, maybe somebody like Steve Scalise steps up and says, actually, I will do it after saying, you know, that he wouldn't. So I don't know. I probably think more likely than not, he gets it, but I'm not sure we'll know until the votes. Well, it sounds as if you've uh, entered your office. Is that true, sir? I'm in the elevator. I've been in the elevator. Uh, tell me if you want to. Hey, you're getting reception, too, in the elevator. That's quite, that's quite good. Uh, if you want me to, we can take a little break now. If you're available after the break, and we'll continue. And I'll tell yeah, you take what. a break, and I'll be back with video. Okay. We've been talking to Phil Kerper. I'm going to take a break a little bit early because uh, he's been audio only. Uh, he's been stuck in traffic in D.C., which is uh, probably understandable to be stuck in traffic in D.C. So uh, this is Ward Scott on the Ward Scott Files, and we are – uh, in the Manly Warthog Man Cave inside the Mellon Law Studio, one of our great supporters. Uh, and they have, of course, the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida, Gators, and perfected by crime prevention and patronize, of course, our sponsors. Uh, Style uh, Cuts is our official uh, barber of the unofficial cleaners is on the spot. Cleaners, um, great people uh, are in our construction if you have any needs in that regard. And um, stick with us because they stick with us. And, and um, you know, make, so be sure and stick with them. Shoot GTR uh, is one of our sponsors. It's a, a safe, safe 
range uh, where you can be trained properly or uh, take classes or just bring uh, up to a par on your confidence with your particular weapon of choice that you're practicing with. Uh, it's a great place. Go tell Bennett uh, Latimer that you uh, I sent you, and he'll be sure to take care of you. He manages the, uh, the Gainesville target range. So um, we're going to take a little break here in a minute, come back with the weather. And um, Phil is now getting off an elevator and going to his office and we'll be back with us on video. If you have questions, let me see them on the chat line because the American commitment uh, is a, uh, a think tank, uh, a conservative think tank. There he is and he's in his office. We're going to uh, still break in just for a minute, uh, Phil. So we'll be right back in a moment on the Ward Scott Files after this bottom of the hour break, which we're taking five minutes early. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Word Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. Welcome back to Ward Scott Files for Ward's Weather Report brought to you by Lewis Oil, one of our great supporters here. Uh, all the Chevron stations, so pretty much uh, fill up with gas. I'm not hooked on these doggone electric cars. Maybe we'll get into that in discussion in a little bit. It seems like a big boondoggle for me and a payoff to the environmental cronies. But um, we're taking a break just a little bit early. We have – I'm sorry I missed the weather report. I wasn't exactly accurate yesterday because 
When we were broadcasting yesterday, boy, was it a balmy, beautiful day here in the Piney Woods of North Central Florida. Uh, fantastic afternoon. And all of a sudden, uh, came through the big front with the violent storms that swept through uh, states like Mississippi and Georgia and Alabama and really caused a lot of terrible havoc there. We thought we would escape that, but we got a little bit of that here. Not a lot, but it came through and dropped our temperature. And we're now running at 46 degrees here right now, which is about a 30 degree difference from what it was yesterday during the show. It's going to get up into the high 70s here, perhaps. But uh, I, did, I apologize. I apologize. I apologize for missing that. So this storm left a lot of tornadoes uh, and um, a lot of places in Alabama, Mississippi. And as I say, and tatters across the south, um, you know, those are the most violent forms of weather, probably even more than the hurricanes. The hurricanes are steady and predictable and leave. But these tornadoes are arbitrary and capricious, if you will. Um, there, obviously, if you're a, I've been saying this all along because I have the memory of the slopes. Boy, what a season it's going to be in the mountains for skiing. Uh, another couple of big dumps are coming through from the northwest and going to get all the uh, station, all the uh, lift uh, 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 resorts, and they're opening yesterday. So, by golly, strap them on. You're going to have a good time out there. Um, basically, um, uh, AccuWeather and uh, uh, some of the other weather. So, uh, informed, uh, websites we consult are calling for more snow across the country than last year. Uh, so there's frigid air moving across now and winds are going to be stirring up life in the Midwest and uh, Northeast. So uh, that's where we are right now. But the tornado outbreak was very deadly in Alabama. We missed it here. We had a gust of high wind come through and bring us a drop in temperature and bring us a pretty heavy rain for a while. So we're back live now with Phil Kirkman, President of American Commitment. I watch the chat line. If you have questions, please let me know uh, what's on your mind. And I've got some, a couple things that have surfaced, Phil, since our break um, that we touched on, but maybe we can go into a little more depth. Um, the Wall Street Journal recently uh, had an article, Phil, you probably saw it. I know you cover a lot of things and research a lot of things. Um, and talking about specifically how the Inflation Reduction Act is going to go after uh, the drug benefit part of Medicare. Are you up on that? Are you able to, because yeah. that affects me, but I, I want to hear about that if you can help me. The, um, the, the regulations that are in this bill for Medicare Part D will make it almost impossible for the companies that sell Part D plans to make money. And so a lot of them are going to exit the market. And so there are going to be many, many fewer choices for Part D. And in some areas of the country, uh, there may be nobody offering a standalone Part D plan, which will mean basically if people want to get prescription drug coverage, they're going to have to go to a Medicare Advantage plan. They're not going to be able to use traditional Medicare with a Part D plan. And so uh, there's a real uh, attack on Part D that's embedded in the Inflation Reduction Act, got almost no attention when they were debating and voting on the bill. And I, I didn't even notice it myself. It was uh, Casey Mulligan from the University of Chicago who brought it to my attention. I believe he wrote the uh, Wall Street Journal article you're referring to as well. Right, with Thomas Philbison, the two of them, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the article I've got here in my hands, boy, I'm telling you, it's kind of a scary deal here. Um, they estimate in 2025, the plan subsidies, specifically the reinsurance subsidy for the beneficiary with the most drug spending will be cut $30 billion out of revenue that currently uh, is about $110 billion. So with $30 billion less to finance the prescription benefits, something's going to have to give. 
And um, I suspect what's going to give is the availability of the drugs at a reasonable rate for people actually have to have them. And some of these drugs that people rely on in the elder years, which Medicare is designed to help, uh, really are quite expensive. Uh, what happens? I mean, something's got to give. Well, uh, what's going to happen, you know, the, uh, the way the Part D is structured, they really can't exclude a lot of drugs uh, because there are all these protected classes of drugs that they have to cover. And so, yeah, they may be able to exclude some drugs, you know, through using you know, formularies and that kind of thing. But um, what I'm really worried about is that a lot of companies that currently offer Part D plans are going to look at uh, how there's less subsidy, how they can't really raise prices to make up for it, how they can't really reduce coverage to make up for it. And they're going to say, this isn't a good business to be in anymore. And just, you know, instead of now where in a lot of places you could choose from 50 different plans, it might be just a handful and they might not cover things that you need. And so I think the... Um, there's going to be much less competition, much less availability of plans, and they're going to be, you know, you're not necessarily going to be able to find a Part D plan that works for you. And, um, you know, as I said, they didn't, they didn't debate this. They didn't say this is what they were doing. They didn't, you know, it's, um, it was stuffed, stuffed in this bill with all these other million things. I've got a question coming in. Is AARP involved in this? Is there one of the, um, I'm not sure how all that works. Is AARP something that might, um, you know, drop out of this whole deal, or how's that relationship work? Well, they heavily they heavily supported this bill, and uh, you Why? know, I think the you know they they've been behaving for years now, primarily as kind of a marketing and PR and political advocacy arm of United Healthcare. They make most of their money from the branding on United Healthcare products, and and by the way, the um, the plans that they sell through United Health with the AARP branding are some of the most expensive plans that are out there. And in fact, I think that the uh, the Medicare Advantage plan, the AARP Medicare Advantage plan is the single highest premium of any Medicare Advantage plan. And, you know, AARP skins 5% off the top. Uh, they get a 5% royalty off the top of all the United Health plans that are branded AARP. And uh, they make over a billion dollars a year now in corporate royalties, which dwarfs what they get from membership fees. So if you make way more money from your corporate deal with United Health than you do from your membership fees, who's who's your boss? Who are you working for? You're not working for the members. You're working for United Health. Essentially, you're working for your corporate partner. And you know, I think that that's why they were so active in supporting uh, this bill. I think that there are going to be many, many, many fewer plans. As I said, some of the only plans that survive will probably be those United Health plans, and uh, they'll be more expensive than ever. And uh, they're going to push more people uh, out of traditional Medicare with a Part D plan towards Medicare Advantage, where they've got one of the most dominant plans. And, you know, I, they've, I, you know, I don't know exactly why United Health thinks that all these changes will be good for them. But if AARP is out there advocating for it, you can bet that United Health has reached that conclusion. And uh, they were out there favoring this bill. And I don't think they ever talked about the effect that it would have on Part D. Uh, their whole thing was that they liked the price control provisions of the bill and it was going to save all this money. But, you know, the price control provisions of the bill are not going to be great for seniors either because um, in the near term, they're actually going to make drugs more expensive, not less expensive, because drugs are only going up about 2% a year. You're going to put an inflation cap in when inflation's running 8%. Every company is going to go up towards the cap because in the future, they're not going to have pricing power. So I think near term, it's actually going to increase drug prices. And then in the long term, um, you're going to get a lot fewer drugs. And there are already companies canceling R&D on drugs because they're not sure they're going to be able to make the money back because of the new pricing model in this. And so I don't think it's good for seniors. 
Uh, but there's no question AARP very actively promoted it, and I think because of the corporate interests of United Health. Could a different Congress change this? Well, uh, one thing Congress is good at is canceling cuts to Medicare, and so maybe, uh, but um, but they don't. See I don't know. We'll see. I mean, it's coming up. It's coming up pretty soon. You know, it's this is not in the distant future. I think it's 2025. This takes effect. 2025, so we'll according to what they wrote. Yeah, 2025. And um, that's just right around the corner, of course. And, um, well, you, I heard three points. One is that the cost of the drugs will go up. Uh, the price to get something to help pay for the drugs is going to go up. And the choices are going to go down. So it doesn't sound like a uh, happy scenario. Yeah, I think all of that's right. I mean, the one, the one upside for seniors is there is, there is a cap on uh, out-of-pocket with this new bill. So you got a $2,000 cap there. So that, you know, you're going to be limited, you know, to, to the extent that drugs are still available, you're going to be limited how much you have to spend out of pocket on them. And uh, there will be some very expensive drug, you know, the 10 most expensive drugs are going to be subject to this government price setting regime starting in 2026. And so if one of the drugs that you need is in that price setting regime, you're going to pay less for it. And of course, they're going to, they're going to, that's going to be everywhere in the media, and they're going to try to sell that for huge political advantage. But, you know, as I said, the, the downside of that is the next new blockbuster drug, that next new breakthrough cancer right. drug or Alzheimer's drug, whatever it is, that might have been canceled in development because the company ran the numbers and they said, well, we might be put into the price control regime. And now the numbers don't work to justify the investment. And we've actually already seen a number of investigational drugs cancel. And so, you know, if it's, it's great to save money. I think we're all for getting prices down. But if the way you do it undermines the incentive to develop new drugs, you've got a big problem. We have another concern that's on people's minds. I think you've probably heard this before, and that's uh, climate reparations. Uh, it's going to be another expensive gimmick. Isn't that amazing how far it's it has suddenly it's been renamed reparations? It's amazing, Phil. I mean, advantage, I mean, reparations is generally associated with the race card. And so they've tied that in with guilt. It's all about guilt. It, yeah, it, it's. Um, I think it's very, very unpopular for us to send massive amounts of American money to third world countries in the name of global warming. Okay, so they came up with a new name. Now it's reparations. Uh, I, I'm very interested to see where Joe Biden's going to come up with the money to do this. I suspect it's going to be some bucket out of Inflation Reduction Act. I doubt. He's going to go to Congress and ask for new money because they'd probably tell him no. So he's probably got some plan of where he's going to pull the money from. But I really hope this is an issue where Congress fights and where we see some leadership from the House and they put some language uh, prohibiting these payments. Because I'll tell you, Ward, there is no way most Americans support a massive increase in foreign aid in the name of global warming or climate reparations. That is a surefire political loser. And so I hope that they will... Um, really take the fight to Democrats on this, get language in, you know, the House, whatever the relevant appropriations bill is in the House prohibiting this, and then really take it to the mat and fight for it in the Senate. I mean, I think this is a, this is such a horrendously bad idea. It's sort of a political gift if Republicans are smart enough to fight hard on it. And the problem in this bill is that um, my experience has been that the American public is so either underinformed or misinformed and it's easy to take advantage of them by hiding things in these bills and using language that means exactly the opposite of what's happening. So, you know, we've just been talking about inflation induction, uh, reduction, it actually increases and uh, climate 
climate reparations. You know, we're going to pay the climate back. If you think about it, it's impossible. Um, and the climate is global. So to what extent do the polluting partners get off scot-free? And those of us who uh, are not responsible for most of the world's pollution right now. Well, it's even worse than that when you think about it, because what, what is what is foreign aid? Where does foreign aid go? Okay, It goes to the corrupt governments of these countries. It doesn't go to the people, right? It goes to the government. So we're going to essentially bribe the governments of third world countries to keep their people in abject poverty by not allowing energy development, by not allowing them to use oil and gas. So we're going to say, we're going to bribe you to keep people poor and to to not allow economic development using fossil fuels. That's what it is. With with US taxpayers money. So who who wins except for the corrupt foreign government? That's it. That's all I mean it's, it's insane. Well, the only thing that can possibly driving it is cronyism. I can't think of any other thing that can be driving it is cronyism return to the political power that sanctions it in the form of contributions to stay in power. I mean, I, I, I've been in this business long enough to know how, how you know, the food really is cooked in the kitchen. You know, I mean, that's when it comes out, it looks, oh, my golly, it's all nice. And, well, you go back in the kitchen and look at how it was made. You know, I mean, uh, you know, it's been going on ever since I've been a talk show host. And I don't I don't it's a local government uh, shell game. It's a, not so much in the state of Florida with with um, DeSantis. We really got a governor here who has decided to take on the traditional ways of uh, of governing, if you will, taking on, as you know, the giants like Disney and taking on the woke world and taking on the, the actual school curriculums and things and, stay, and you know, getting getting the job done. But uh, I don't know if it's fair to segue over into the um, um, constant type of pressure we've seen since Trump came down the escalator. But now the tax returns have been turned over. Anything in the tax returns that could be, I mean, come on, this is a, this is New York where this guy played the game, you know? Look, I mean, I think that um, whatever's in his tax returns has probably been through 20 lawyers and 15 accountants. And, uh, you know, obviously he's making aggressive use of all of the various loopholes and everything that Congress put in there, I'm sure, to minimize his taxes. And the IRS fights him every year. That's why he's an audit every year. So they have the... You know, so they have a fight over it. But this idea that the Democrats are going to say, oh, my God, we caught him on. I, I actually think, by the way, the precedent that they've set of the opposition party going to the Treasury and getting a bunch of tax returns on a political enemy, they're going to regret that. They're going to regret it maybe sooner than they think, because uh, you can imagine uh, all of the shadiness that a lot of their people get involved in. And if now, you know, Republican investigators can go ask for tax returns on uh, anyone they want to. This is a bad road we're going down, and I think that uh, it's it's going to be it, it's going to be potentially ugly for a lot of people. I mean, the um, you know, I'm in favor of everyone trying to pay as little tax as they lawfully can, and even if that includes fighting with the IRS or using what. And you know, if you think that uh, we've got too many loopholes and uh, too many uh, ways that people game, that's we do, yes. But Congress wrote all that. So until they fix the, you know, I would love to have a simple flat tax and have none of that and get rid of it. But until they actually do that, there's nothing wrong with doing everything you can to minimize your taxes using the rules that they put in place. And so, you know, I don't think I would let me put it this way. Where I would be surprised if there's some great scandal in there. Obviously, they're going to try to say, you know, he claimed some tax shelter or whatever. But I don't think that'll surprise anyone. Well, I think the point is more political damage to 
the image and try to, you know, really get him off the playing field. He's been the greatest advantage for them to play themselves against, as you know. I think you'd agree with that. Uh, and they keep that going through controlling the narrative. Um, Ted Yoho, when he's on, makes the point that when Obama got in office, he stated that he was going to remake America. And he really has, has he not? He really has. When you start looking back over your shoulder at where we got into this, the vision we've got now and all the kind of acrimony and all that business, uh, you can make the case that it began with that statement, can you not, in many ways? Yeah, I mean, I think the exact thing he said was it was five days before the election. He said, we're five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. And I, I think you're right. I think that uh, he did that. And, you know, it wasn't just the big laws that they passed. You know, he, they did the big stimulus law with all the green energy spending and, of course, Obamacare. But I think more than that, it was a cultural transformation or a cultural revolution of sorts. Uh, and the left has really starting with Obama, but then accelerating in the Trump years, uh, the left has become um, sort of culturally hegemonic. They dominate all of the elite institutions, um, the media, Hollywood, universities, uh, and so forth, and they don't allow dissent. Uh, they make it, they, they, they ostracize anyone who dissents from their central left-wing cultural views. And of course, you know, that's why they're so angry about Twitter becoming a free speech platform, right? You know, they, 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 they can't accept the idea of not having total cultural control through every major channel. Uh, they can't accept the idea of conservatives even being able to speak with large platforms. Um, and that's why they're, they're totally freaking out right now about uh, what Elon Musk is doing with Twitter. And I do think, to your point, that is a real change. That is a real transformation where everything is politicized. Everything is polarized. You've got the, um, you know, the, the culture completely politicized and dominant by, you know, the hardcore woke left. And you can't have normal conversations anymore in a lot of places in the country and just express normal conservative views without being attacked, without people jumping on you. And, uh, you know, in sort of the public square and all across all these different spheres. And to me, um, that's much more dangerous than anything they've actually done through legislation or through the formal political system. Because if you control, uh, if you have sort of total control of the culture, then, you know, the opposing political views don't even get expressed, let alone enacted. Well, it certainly is um, scaring them that Twitter is in the hands of uh, the world's richest man and arguably maybe the world's smartest man. I mean, this guy has... Uh, you know, his his rockets don't blow up, you know. He's got so many companies. You know, I just saw a story yesterday about some company that he owns is going to start putting implants in people's brains for, like, people who had spinal injuries so they can, uh -huh. like, communicate directly. But I didn't even know he had this company. I'm like, what company? I'm like, how many companies this guy have? Well, now uh, we got a, we got a, a viewer who wants to know, uh, maybe we'll review the tax returns of Hunter. Let's go to that. Can we get in? Yoho once again says, I don't want any more investigations if nothing's going to come out of it. And I suspect, by the way, nothing's going to come out of the January 6th investigation. It's just been a long attempt to keep it in the news and continue this thing we've been talking about, this narrative that began with Obama. Um, and I don't think there's any, I don't know, what would be the end result of going and hunting down Hunter Biden and Meanwhile, Rome is burning. You know, we got inflation. Yeah, you know, it's, um, 
I think the whole point of the Hunter laptop investigation, and I think the um, I think the people who are doing the investigation, the oversight committee would agree with this. Um, it's not about Hunter per se, because you know if the Department of Justice wants to prosecute him, and I you know, I hope they do because I think he committed crimes, they have more than enough to do it. They might not do it. They might do it. I, you know, I don't know. But I think the whole point of that investigation is to figure out the extent to which Joe Biden is compromised by these foreign dealings in Ukraine and China and other places and to figure out the extent of his involvement and the implications that that has for our current administration and for current policy. And, and I think that's you know why the media and you know all the people who are against doing the invest, they try to downplay and say, oh, Hunter's not president. Okay. No, yeah, that's true. But we need to understand, I think, you know, about the 10 percent for the big guy, about the extent to which Joe really was involved in these deals. And then related to that, you know, has that colored the decision making that we've seen in foreign policy? Because we've had one disaster after another with this administration. And if he's on the take, that might explain some of it. So I I actually have no problem with them doing those investigations. But I do think that, that they've got to connect the dots to the bigger issues of the way the administration is currently being run and, and may potentially be compromised more so than just proving that Hunter Biden committed crimes. Cause the guys, the guys on video smoking crack. I mean, we know he committed crimes. There's yeah. not much question about that. We don't know whether they'll prosecute him or not, but we do know he committed crimes. I don't think it's very interesting to investigate his crimes except as they relate to the president. And I think that's mostly the way uh, you'll see them conduct that investigation. Uh, and for, 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 for that reason. Um, but yeah, they've got a million things to investigate, Ward. I mean, this is, I, I want to see them investigate almost every aspect of COVID. I don't know if you noticed, but Fauci the other day, you know, he's been saying for two, two years, two and a half years, oh, it couldn't have come from a lab. It couldn't have come from a lab. Over the weekend, he said, oh, it definitely could have come from the lab, but it wasn't, <laughs> uh, but I didn't fund it. It wasn't one of the viruses I funded. I saw that. So that's a big change, right? That's a big change. And I saw in that. I saw that. So, I mean, there's a lot for them to investigate. I mean, I'd like to see them investigate this, um, the, the cross-dresser who steals luggage, who somehow was hired to be our, uh, to oversee spent nuclear fuel, which could be diverted to nuclear bombs. I mean, what, how was he hired? How did he pass security clearances? I mean, I think that's pretty interesting to investigate. But, you know, there are a million small things like that. I mean, it, you know, it's not even necessarily small. It's, you know, nuclear material. So, I mean, I think, um, because the current Congress under Democrats has done zero to investigate any malfeasance of this administration, there's going to be a huge backlog of things uh, for them to go after. And, you know, I do, I, I kind of share the uh, the sympathy of uh, if no one gets prosecuted, what's the point? But I think that uh, even if all, all the referrals you make to DOJ don't lead to anything, it's still really important to get answers to a lot of these questions that we have and to, you can hold people accountable through other ways by getting information out and using it at the next election. And so, I mean, I do think that um, oversight is really important, not least because they're really not going to pass much legislation. There's still a Democratic Senate. Even if you somehow get things through the Democratic Senate, the president has to sign it. And so I think the chief power that Republicans want in this past election is the power to do investigation. You know, we touched on COVID. And for uh, when I first uh, heard the word, I thought, well, we'll report on this for a week or two and it'll be for uh, three years <laughs> and for three. And it's turned out to be this generation's um, version of the depression for the generation in the in the 30s. I mean, and by that, I mean, look at how it's changed everything the way it's been handled. And it became a political tool. And and even to the point that you could 
by a mask or the absence of a mask, kind of tell what party the person was in. Yeah. You know, right. it, it became a like uh, 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 the red signifier of political identity. Yeah, yeah the scarlet letter, you know, and Esther Brin. I mean, we knew where you were politically by what you had on or didn't have on, but it has really become apparently quite an issue for China. Uh, They've got a huge problem right now. They've got the entire country is in, uh, is, is, they've got large protests in every major city. And of course, you know, what triggered this was um, I think 14 people it was, maybe, I don't know the exact number, 14 or 15 people uh, died in a fire in a building that was on lockdown in Xinjiang. And when they do lockdown in China, it's not like in America where we did lockdown. It was basically some guy comes on TV and says, stay in your house. When they do lockdown in China, they lock the doors from the outside. You can't open the door to get out of your apartment. Uh, that's how, you know, that's how heavy handed they are with their lockdown. And so they had a fire in the building. People couldn't get out. They died. And so there's a lot of anger about that. And I think the, the big question in China is kind of like, what, what's, what's the end point, right? You, know, you put people in these lockdowns, then they all get vaccinated, then you put them back in lockdowns. And, you know, COVID's part of the world. It's never going away. You know, we're cold and flu season is now cold flu and COVID season. It's going to happen every year. And I think that until the Chinese leadership kind of wraps their head around that and says, okay, we're returning to normal life, uh, they're walking a very, very dangerous path because people are not going to tolerate these conditions indefinitely. And that's why there's so much anger right now uh, in that country. And, you know, the one thing that that she doesn't want to do is admit he was wrong, but sooner or later, he's going to have to. And uh, if not, he's going to have, uh, you know, you could have the, I mean, you, you could have the Chinese Communist Party collapse over this. You could have the country, you know, this could collapse rapidly like the old Soviet Union if they insist on, you know, continuing on a course of action that people are just totally against. You know, I mean, obviously they can try to crack down with police and military and being as heavy handed as they want. But, you know, if a billion people lose confidence in them, it's going to disintegrate. And so I think they've got to, yeah, they're going to do it a little bit in fits and starts, but I think they're going to exit zero COVID over the next month or two. I think they have no choice. I have a sort of a pen pal, if you will. Remember the old days, there were pen pals. I don't know if you had those in your youth, but uh, uh, now they're kind of uh, Facebook pals because you can communicate at the speed of light all over the world. And I have some friends that are on the teacher exchange program in China and have been very outgoing and forthcoming with what they're doing and sharing this and that one another. And all of a sudden, that's dried up. And uh, I communicated with them uh, maybe for the last time for a while because they guardedly communicated back and said, well, basically what they said indicated without saying it that way is they were going dark. And it was too dangerous for them to, because I asked them what's really going on there. And they said, we can't, we're not going to comment on that. We can't comment on that. And that's really interesting because these are people that China invited in, you know, to teach uh, to the Chinese, the English language, basically, because the Chinese recognize that that English language runs the world. And if you know that language, you can run the world. Um, and, and and so they really, really study the English language. And and all of a sudden, that's become affected by this exchange program. So at that level, those people are on guard. And they have been ordered to stay home and in, you know, guarded conditions and all that. So they can now wait to get out. Um, that was kind of the last indication I had from them. They can't wait to get home. And, and that wasn't the case. They were very eager to stay there. So 
it's interesting to watch. I, I don't know. I've got mixed feelings about it, Phil. I mean, it's such a dictatorial society with so much uh, to lose if they don't control it. Um, not that it can't be overturned, but, um, well, I'm telling you, it's got a, a strong hand, does it not? I mean, it's really punitive. And some ways... Yeah, you know, when I saw one video, I don't know if you saw this one, I saw one video where one of the protesters was standing in front of like a Jeep. It wasn't a tank, but it was some kind of a, you know, military type vehicle. Um, and he was standing in front of there with the white paper, which is what they're doing for protesting censorship is they've got these blank pages of paper. And there's all these police just jumped him. And it was sort of, it reminded me of Tiananmen. And, uh, you know, I think that on the one hand, these protests are inspiring and you think maybe they'll actually succeed in forcing some changes. But on the other hand, you're right. They're going to crack down. They're going to crack down hard on these people. I wonder how many have already been disappeared and, you know, killed or sent into prisons or whatever it is. I mean, I, they, they, um, you know, there's going, it, it's very likely that, that given the nature of the regime there, they will respond in ways that are pretty brutal towards a lot of these people. And Biden has a hands off on it. He's, uh, he wouldn't even it. say he supports the protesters. They asked yeah. him about it. And he was like, oh, you know, it's important to have COVID control measures or whatever he said. It's like, okay, I mean. I mean, that that's unheard of. I mean, in terms of our positions on behavior like that around the world to not I'd be an advocate for dissent and free speech. But then on the other hand, they're not advocate for it here locally. Why would they be for it there? You know, uh, they certainly don't advocate for it. Uh, well, you know, you remember how they covered protests against COVID restrictions in the U.S., crazy right wing nuts want to kill everyone and all this kind of thing. And so I think they're sort of normally we would support protesters, but that's kind of <laughs> we're on the other side. And so I think they're in a it's tough. They, they are in a bind of their own making. Uh, well, man, man, uh, we just got a couple of minutes left. Phil, and thanks so much for the exchange of conversations and ideas and thoughts. And um, this is AmericanCommitment.org. And uh, you can check out what Phil Kirkman and his colleagues do. It's basically a conservative think tank that investigates all sorts of issues and then really becomes an advocate where possible and uh, in the government. You actually go to the White House and you actually go to Congress with your advocacies, right? Actually, I haven't been to the White House since the current president took office. <laughs> they didn't want you? My, What's going on? Yeah, no, I, I, I was... I had a lot of meetings up there in the last administration, not so much in this one. I'll be darned. You can't even get in the halls of Congress, huh? <laughs> yeah, you can get in the halls of Congress. Well, this is what, under Nancy Pelosi, you can't even go into the House office buildings anymore unless a staffer comes out and escorts you in. So supposedly Republicans are going to get rid of that. It's going to be back to normal up there. Uh, but under the Pelosi rules, you have to actually have someone come meet you and escort you into the building. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Well, thanks for taking time out, as always, with us. We uh, get to chat with Phil maybe once a month or so, and it's always enjoyable and always uh, a very informative. And over the time we've been together, I've certainly enjoyed our conversations, and hopefully I'm holding up my end of them and keeping you uh, uh, on your toes about things you're looking at. So uh, have a great day, and uh, stay out of that doggone D.C. traffic. <laughs> I, it's so annoying. I loved it better when people were hiding in their homes and you could just zip around town. <laughs> 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 all right would have a good one thank you Phil. thanks for coming on well we're going to sign off today on the ward scott files and hope you have an enjoyable day although we are a little bit chillier but still clear i want to thank production for bringing us a good show today and uh, we're going to of course follow us on rumble um you know how it goes so we are 
informed when somebody signs on and follows us. So follow us on Rumble. Uh, we do repost the shows at wardscottfiles.com shortly after this show is over. And, of course, it's shared out on the audio podcasts and Apple podcasts and all the like. And uh, we certainly uh, hope that you get informed and a little bit more uh, educated as to what's going on in your culture, both locally and statewide and nationally, even internationally. So thanks so much for joining us. And we'll be back tomorrow. Warthog Command Center out.